You are listening to the Long Hollow Podcast. For more information on Long Hollow or to watch a video version of this podcast, visit www.longhollow.com. We're at the final sermon of our series. If you're joining us for the first time today, we are in a series called Did God Really Say? And today we're going to ask the question, what does the Bible say about gender identity? Uh, As with all the sermons up to this point, I want to just say I I recognize uh, the sensitivity of the topic, and and I realize that um, it's tough for some of you to hear and even think about some of these things because they're very personal to you. As I've studied this for the past six months, it's become clear to me, particularly on this topic, that God's word is very clear and simple when it comes to gender identity. I mean, so much so that I was tempted to just read Genesis 1 and then preach a four or five minute sermon. Don't get any ideas. So I didn't decide not to do that. No. The one of the reasons I decided that was because I recognize that there are more implications and complications that come with this issue. It's very nuanced. Uh, And there's a lot of things we need to unpack uh, when it comes to this topic. Let me start a couple weeks ago, if you weren't here in the beginning. We began the series where I tried to make a case for absolute or objective truth. And I showed you that objective truth comes from the Word of God, not my decision, not my ideas, but the unchanging, unending Word of God. And then we went to the second sermon where I basically talked about how sexuality was given by God in the confines of a marriage covenant, one man, one woman, one flesh, one lifetime. We saw different deviations from that and how when we deviate from God's design of that, there are consequences for our actions, right? God gives us the choice to do what we want, but there are consequences. We talked last week, if you were here, about what the Bible says about homosexuality. Today, we're gonna talk about what the Bible says about gender identity. And with every sermon, let me just share with you, we were left encouraged to know that what is outside of God's design is not outside of God's redemption. And that's encouraging, right? Like just because something's outside of God's design doesn't mean it's not redeemable by God. Today we're gonna talk about God's identity or the identity God gave us. And what we're gonna see today, and it's very reassuring, God doesn't expect us to decide our gender because it was designed by him. The weight of trying to decide what gender we are, we don't have to feel the weight of that because God has given us already a picture of what that is in his word. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Genesis 1. We'll start in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I want to begin by taking you back in a time machine to the year 1994. So I want you to go back with me. Some of you say it's gonna be hard because I wasn't born yet. Well, for those who were born, uh, just imagine 1994. That was the year I graduated from high school. Any 1994 graduates in here, okay? Young bucks, yeah. That was the year Forrest Gump uh, came out as a movie. Uh, That was the year that Major League Baseball went on strike for 232 days, for those who remember that. Uh, That was the year that O.J. Simpson fled in a white Ford Bronco. It was also the year Ace of Base and Boys to Men topped the charts. Anybody? (laughs) Anybody remember those groups? That was also the very year that a cutting-edge cell phone technology came out in the form of the Motorola 2900 bag phone. 
Don't knock it because back then, anybody had this phone? My parents actually had this phone. You put that strap over your shoulder and you click that little receiver out to that cord. I mean, we thought we were something back then. Now, I want you to imagine that I go back to that year, 1994, and I show up to your doorstep with a box, big box of black devices. These devices, unbeknownst to you, are the new iPhone 14. Now, I don't explain to you what the devices are, nor how to use them. I don't give you an owner's manual. I don't give you a video series. In fact, you can't even go to YouTube to learn how to use them because YouTube won't be invented for 11 more years. So you're stuck, right? And so I leave these devices to you, and unbeknownst to you, there is more computing power in this device than was in the Apollo lander that landed a man on the moon. But you don't know that because you don't know what it's used for. And so I leave them to you and I let you figure out what they're used for. You decide to distribute these devices to family and friends and you start calling one another. Hey, I figured out what this is used for. It's an amazing coaster. Anybody know that? I mean, it doesn't perspire. Look at the screen, it's glass. You can set a glass on it. I wish I had more, I could put more drinks on them. Right, you don't know. Another person says, no, it's not a coaster, it's actually a toy. It's a spin top, look at this thing. I mean, you can, you just spin, I mean, all the kids are doing it, everybody else is doing it, it's a spin top, right? And then someone pushes back and says, no, it's not a spin top, it's, it's not a coaster, it's actually an amazing paperweight. I mean, look at this, you could hold papers, look, you can even hold a place in a book or a Bible, you can put it in here. Now, all of these things are comical because we know what this is intended for, but let's just say I come back a couple months later and I show up to see if you're using the device for what it was created for. And I realized early on that, that you aren't, right? You're not using it for what it was created for because it was intended for something so much more. There's so much potential here. There's so much capability here that you don't know about. And in order to understand how to use a phone or this device, you have to consult with the creator's manual or with the creator, right? Even if people say at that time, but you don't understand. That's not what it's used, it's not a phone. All my friends at school are saying this is a paperweight. I mean, that's what everybody's saying. Or better yet, you may say, well, I just read on AOL Instant Messenger that this is a, that's a 90s joke, by the way. <laughs> I just read on Instant Messenger, this is a spin top, right? Wouldn't it make sense, coming close, young people listen, wouldn't it make sense to consult the creator and his manual and not the end user and your friends? Long Hollow, if we need to consult a creator's manual on how to operate a phone to see what it was created for, how much more do we as human beings need to consult with the divine creator of our bodies to see what God intended them for? We shouldn't listen to the culture as loud as the voices are. We shouldn't listen to social media. We shouldn't listen to our friends in school or our classmates or the media. We should listen to the one who created us to see what he intended for us. Now here's the cool thing, God has given us a plan. He's given us, he's given us a blueprint. He showed us an outline of why and what we're created for. So if you have a Bible, as you are, turn to Genesis chapter one. We like to say word at Long Hollow. When we get to the word we're studying, Genesis chapter one, verse 27, the word of the Lord. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Now for God, there's only two categories 
of sexuality, two categories for gender. Go down to gender, uh, Genesis chapter two, verse 22. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman. Now, these two words in English, I'm gonna show you what they mean in Hebrew, and it's gonna give you a picture of how simple this is for God. Man into woman and brought her to the man. I wanna give you two truths about gender identity. Number one is this, God's design for our bodies is good. God's design for our bodies is good. Now, before I make the case, let me just make sure we're on the same page here. Where you begin an argument or where you begin thinking will determine where you end up. So basically, your beliefs about how you got here or I got here as an individual will determine where we go from here and ultimately determine our worldview or the way we see all things. Does that make sense? Let me explain to you. For example, if you think that human beings came to this planet as a result of a cosmological chicken soup in the sky as a result of the combustion of atomic particles together millions of years ago, then you're gonna end up at a very different place than I'm going today, okay? On the other hand, if you believe that you and I were created by a divine designer who lovingly knit us together in our mother's womb and formed us in his image, then the case I'm gonna make today is gonna make sense, okay? In Jewish schools in Israel, at the age of five and six, they indoctrinate and teach them this very simple principle on the first day of class. The first thing they teach them is Genesis chapter one, and they get the class to repeat after the teacher, and I want you to do it. In the beginning, God. I want you to repeat that with me. In the beginning, God. Say it again. In the beginning, God. Any questions? That's what they say. Because in the beginning, God. And God creates all things. He creates the stars and the planets and the sky, creates the animals, the sea and the land. And then he gets to the crowning jewel of all creation, which is Adam and Eve, man and woman. Now, did I mention to y'all yet why Adam calls Eve woman? Did I mention that? That's a joke. Yeah, y'all know that. I mean, really. So he creates man and woman, right? And in the Hebrew, it's a whole lot clearer than the English. Now, this is a fascinating insight. The Hebrew language only has 8,000 words. Did you know this? The English language has over 100,000. So in the Hebrew, they have to be creative with how they teach theology. And so what the, the writers of the Hebrew, or the authors are trying to do is show us little insights with the wording. When you see it in the Hebrew, you'll see why there's only man and woman. The word man in Hebrew is the word ish, I-S-H, ish. The word woman in the Hebrew is isha, A-H added to the I-S-H. So think of it like a puzzle piece, right? These are two puzzle pieces that go together, and when they're separated, there's a missing section that can only be interconnected when the man is connected with the piece of the woman that is missing. Does that make sense? So think of it like a puzzle piece. The woman is the only one who can complement the man, and the man is the only one who can complement the woman. Now we know why the very next thing God says in this passage in Genesis 1 is this, watch. Verse 28, or, or chapter two, verse 24, sorry. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, with a woman. 
It's like, it's like, it's like a super glue. It's like, a, it's like amalgamating them together. And they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked and yet felt no shame. Say it again, because I think it's important for you to hear this. But a woman is the essential counterpart to the man. The woman is equal in value and worth, different in function and role. The reason God created the woman out of the rib and the side and not the head or the foot, because she's not above or below, she is equal to in value and worth, amen? Relationships, church, were so important to God. Sexuality and gender was so important to God that he began the very Bible with it. Isn't it cool that God in his infinite wisdom Thousands, I love this, thousands and thousands of years ago knew that in 2022, gender identity would be a big deal. That he decided to start the Bible by saying he created them male and female, he created them man and woman. Now something happens that mars creation. In fact, you hear me talk about the fall. You've heard people talk about the fall, the fall of Adam and Eve. Basically what that is, is Adam and Eve are in perfect harmony with God. They are walking with God. They have intimacy with God. But because they rebel against God, they are separated from God and they fall from grace in a sense. They fall from his presence. Here's how it happens, watch. Genesis chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. Now what's, what's wrong with her response? For those who know the story. Did God say this? Did God say you'll die if you eat it or touch it? No, God said just don't eat it. She adds these parameters around it, right? And Satan says, no, you will surely not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. Basically what she's doing here is she's saying, God, you're holding something from us. You're not a benevolent God. You're not a good God. You didn't give us everything, which is what Satan wants you to think. There's something more here. There's something left out here. And so she takes the fruit and eats it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it and their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. God spent uh, time telling Adam early on, this is what's good and this is what's bad. This is what's right and this is what's wrong. And you have a choice. You can follow my word or you can follow my way or your way. And if you follow your way, there are consequences for your actions. Listen to me. You and I are not puppets. We are individuals with free will and we can decide to follow God's way or our way. But when we follow our way, we're gonna accept the consequences for our actions, just like the first couple. And because they rebelled against God, something happened immediately. It set a series of events into motion. Prior to the fall, prior to the sin, there was no disease. Think about this. There was no sickness. There was no immorality. There was no sin. After the fall, sin enters the world. Now there are deformities. 
Now there is disease. Now there is depression. Now there's death and immorality. And because of that, now humans have a propensity toward a depraved mind or depraved bodies, right? You start to see this today. And at that point, it affects us physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our entire body is radically depraved, as some would say. It's not God's standard. And this is how you have deviations from sexuality or deviations in gender identity today. But here's the good news. There's hope for us. Even though... The world is going to Hades in a handbasket, if you will, if you look back there. The world is diminishing sinfully. God is redeeming globally because God is putting a plan in place, number two, to redeem his creation. As bad as that is, and as bad as it looks, at that moment, God puts into plan a, 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 a plan or puts into action a plan to redeem his creation. Let me just remind you again of the verse and I want you to see the plain reading of scripture. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female, two categories for gender. And the reason gender is a big deal, you think, why is this such a big deal? Gender is a big deal because it's a picture of the gospel. Follow me. Any deviation from the male-female man-woman, husband-wife relationship is an attack on the gospel, okay? The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, how a person has a relationship with God today and tomorrow. And you gotta remember, we said this before, Satan hates the gospel, why? Because he hates God. And so anytime you have a perversion or a deviation of the picture of marriage, which the husband is a picture of, the, uh, of, of God, the wife is a picture of the church, anytime you have a deviation of that, whether man or woman or deviation in marriage, you have an alteration of the gospel which warps the message. That's why this is so important. Sam Alberry uh, was a man who had same-sex attraction uh, early on in his, in his childhood and, and then college and then he was born again, and he said the Lord um, changed his heart, but he didn't change his desires right away. That he's a man today who still is tempted with same-sex desire. He's decided to live a life of celibacy for the glory of God. And he says this line, he said, our culture today says your psychology, your mindset, the way you think, the way you feel that you are, your psychology is your sexual identity. Let your body be conformed to it, or let your body be conformed to what your mind says, what you feel. But the Bible says otherwise. Your body is your sexual identity. Let your mind be conformed to it. Meaning, it reminds us of Paul in Romans 12.1. Remember what Paul said. Do not be conformed to the ways of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? Your mind, and the way you renew your mind is through the word of God. Remember, the world says, your gender is your sexuality. The Bible says your sex is your gender. That's the difference. Just a side note here, and I don't wanna mess anybody's gender reveal party up. But semantically, technically, that's wrong. It's not a gender reveal party, it's a sex reveal party. Did you know this? But who in the world's gonna call it a sex? I get that, okay, but the reality is that's the culture we live in. now. Here's how this works, and I want you to see this. I realize the opening illustration about the iPhone did teach us a little bit about sexuality and gender and creation, but it actually breaks down some. 
Because when you push back on the illustration, you realize that we're not a group of technological machinery. You, know, you and I are not machines, we are human beings. And as human beings, we are God's masterpiece, right? We're not, we're not a bunch of parts put together. We are God's creation, his masterpiece that he knit together perfectly, but because of the fall, we are marred in image and practice. How many people remember in high school, I know it's gonna bring some of you back, but how many people remember in high school history studying about Plato or, or Socrates or Aristotle? Anybody, any students studying that now today? Greek philosophers? Um, you may remember about Plato and Aristotle. I don't know if you know, but Plato actually has influenced current Christianity more than, than most. In fact, his ideas are still infiltrating the church today. Plato believed, if you study him, he's a Greek philosopher, Plato believed that salvation for the person, not Christianity, but salvation, the freeing of one's body, happened when the soul which lived in the body was freed from the prison cell of the flesh. So, so Plato always proposed that you have to find a way to get your soul free from the, the prison of the body that held it captive. Now, Christianity is gonna preach a different message if you study the Bible. Christianity would say, yes, the flesh is sinful, but the soul is going to be obviously saved by Christ, but so is the flesh. And even though the flesh is marred by sin, Christ will redeem our bodies one day. So much so that the fact that Jesus came back in his resurrected form, he was in a body, remember this? Jesus left as a man and didn't come back as a ghost. He actually came back as a resurrected man. And just a side note, watch this. If you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and I hope you do, when God returns to raise you in your body, he's gonna resurrect you in the gender he made you in. Let me say that again. If you believe in the resurrection, he will resurrect you in the gender he created you in. Now, why the history lesson on Greek philosophy? Well, I don't know if you knew this, but the church of Corinth, which is in Greece, was influenced by Plato. So much so that the early believers were debating over whether that, you know, God saved my soul. We agree to that. I believe Christ saved my soul. But why do I need to worry about saving this body? Why can't I just prostitute this body out to sex and sexual immorality if it's gonna be done away with one day? And Paul gives a strong rebuke against that. Paul's gonna say in 1 Corinthians 6, 13, watch what he says. He's gonna show us the connection of the soul and the body. He says, food is for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will do away with both of them. <laughs> However, the body is not for sexual immorality, is not for same-sex attraction, is not for gender confusion, is not for pornography, is not for adultery. That's what he's saying, anything that is immoral sexually. But for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. God raised us up in the body by the Lord and will also raise us up in the body by his power. Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So should I take part of Christ's body and make it a part of the prostitute? No, absolutely not. Here's what he's saying, coming close. He's saying the body and the soul are inextricably connected to one another. Now Paul's gonna go on to say in just a moment that God has given you a body and it is a temple of the Holy Spirit which resides, who resides in you. You were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your what? In your bodies. Now, if you're struggling with, with gender identity, 
or confusion over your gender, you're probably saying, okay, that, that, that's really good. I get that. I see that in the Bible. But Pastor Robbie, that offers no help to me up to this point because it doesn't take away the pain and the brokenness I feel in my body at this present time. And, and I acknowledge that. I, I know that doesn't help with that. But I wanna offer you some encouragement that I think Paul offers to all of us who are broken and recognize our brokenness regardless of what it is. Paul is gonna to speak to the church of Rome in chapter eight, and he's gonna talk about something that may have been confusing in the past, but I wanna explain what Paul's talking about. He says, for we all know that the whole creation, everything, has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Labor pains. Why, why are you talking about us talking about labor pains? Here's what he says. Not only that, but we ourselves, who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Here's the question. Why are believers groaning and waiting for the return of Christ? That makes no sense. Why are believers, uh, why, why are the pains we experience today compared to the labor pains of a woman? You ever thought about this? Pretty interesting concept. When Jesus first came, follow me, he died on a cross for the redemption and the saving of our souls. But at the same time, he allowed us to still live in broken bodies, okay? So our souls are saved by the purchase uh, uh, on the cross with his blood, but our bodies are still broken. And for some of you, it's mental illness, right? Like mental illness affects everything you do. You live with a constant fear and anxiety on a daily basis. I mean, for others of you, it's depression. It's depression that imprisons you in a bed on stretches of days or takes away your appetite for food. For others, it's an eating disorder. You feel overweight even though you know that you're too thin. For some of you, it's a drug addiction. It's an addiction that waits by the bedside every morning and begs you for more drugs. For some of you, it's a mental illness that has plagued and crippled your life up to this point. For some, it's sexual temptations. I mean, you know, you know what God says about sex being reserved for one man, one woman, one flesh, one lifetime. And you know that deviations from that is sin, but you still have same-sex desires. For some of you, it's gender confusion or gender identity questions that are contrary to the gender you were born with in a hundred other different ways that we have feelings and emotions and desires that are contrary to the way God designed us. But as difficult as labor pains are, here's what Paul's saying. There is unspeakable joy and worth for that one who endures the pain, right? There's great joy that comes on the tail end of enduring the pain. Now, let me just say before I talk about labor pains, I don't pretend to know anything about labor pains. Okay, ladies, I don't pretend to know, nor does any man in here want to know. Can I get a witness, right? I mean, we don't wanna know. I'll be the first to tell you that women are way stronger and tougher than men. I'm okay with that, right? But let's say, ladies, you're, you're in the delivery room and, and you're about to have a child and you're experiencing these 
these unbelievably painful pains and someone walks in, let's say a man walks in and he says to you, listen, the pain isn't really that bad. Just, just hang on, it'll go away soon, right? What do you do to him at that point? I know what Candy would do, right? If you have the ability, you would throw something at him or you would throw him out of the room, right? You're like, whatever that, you get out of here. Because at that moment, if someone were to ask you, you would say, and you'd be honest, this pain I'm experiencing is unbearable. The human body should not have to endure this right now, and you would be right. But as soon as the doctor comes back and takes that newborn infant and gives it to you for the first time to hold and you're overwhelmed with unspeakable joy, it's amazing how that moment overshadows your past pain. It's almost like you forget about it, right? It's almost like you're willing to have another child, right? I mean, right? And another child, right? Like, lady, you just forget all about it because you realize that the joy in the moment allows you to have amnesia of the pain of the past. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, hang in there because there's joy coming in the morning one day. One of the greatest places that uh, Candy and I have been together is uh, the country of Italy. If you've ever been, anybody been to Italy before? Anybody want to go to Italy? We're trying to, we're thinking about planning a trip next year to Italy, by the way, a, a Christian tour trip. But anyway, um, we've been to Israel a number of times. We we're thinking about going to Italy. Uh, but the last time I went to, I've been to Italy twice. And uh, the last time I wanted to see this, this is one of the things I've gone, I've gone to Italy a couple of times, but never seen, seen this, but I really have wanted to see this. And it's the mural or the painting on the wall from Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper. Uh, it's in Milan. It's actually uh, on the wall of, of a Dominican convent. Uh, if you know the story about this, Leonardo da Vinci was a master painter and he actually painted this in 1498. The painting is over 500 years old on the wall. And they knew early on that this may not stand the test of time because within 20 years, the, play, the paint actually started to chip off the wall and they started to figure out, man, we gotta do something about this. Well, it took them 500 years before an art restorer decided to restore the painting to its original glory. And so they went through the process to, to start doing the due diligence of what it would take to take this masterpiece and return it to its original intention. And believe it or not, they started the process about 20 years ago. It took them, you ready for this? 20 years to restore this masterpiece back to its original uh, intention. Now, one of the things you know, if you know anything about art restoration or restoration of any kind, is that the last thing you wanna do is alter or change the painting, right? I mean, the last thing you wanna do is like add a 13th disciple because you just think Jesus needed another guy to, to ask questions and cause problems, right? Let's put him right in between Jesus and Judas right there, right? That's the last thing you would do. You, you wouldn't change the seating order around the table members, right? Like I think Peter needs to be by Matthew, right? You wouldn't do that, why? Because the moment you do that, you, don't miss this, you distort or you mar the original intention of the designer. Instead, what restorers do is they spend countless hours studying the, the mindset of the artist and the designer, and they study the intention of the painting, and they take painstaking time to restore it to its original intention. Friends, I want you to think about this. 
Everything you and I see with our eyes in this world was created by a divine designer as a masterpiece. And when God finished creating the world, he decided to create the crowning jewel of all creation, the apex of all things. It was man and woman. He created Adam and Eve perfect. Now I know we already talked about this. God's perfect creation was marred by sin and now sin affected them and in the way they thought and the way they acted and their minds and their actions. But God decides to say, I'm gonna redeem creation. Friends, I have good news for you today, church, listen to me. One day the divine designer is going to come back himself to the earth he created and he's gonna restore his masterpiece to its original design. He will send the enemy away to a place he deserves for all the pain he's caused his creation. He's gonna restore the sexual brokenness that you may feel today. He's gonna make whole the gender confusion that the world is experiencing today. He's gonna take the deep hurts in your body and they will make sense. He's gonna wipe away every tear from every eye and he's gonna let you know that he hasn't wasted or misplaced one tear that you have shed. He's kept them all and there will be no more death and no more mourning or no more crying or no more pain. Because the Bible says the old things will pass away. Behold, all things are new. See, when you know that, then you understand why Paul began this, sections, this section of Romans 8 that we read earlier about labor pains in verse 18 with these words. He said, for I consider, I love this, he's shouting here, for I consider the sufferings of this present time. What are the sufferings? Sexual uh, identity, same-sex attraction, pornography, immorality, depression, anxiety, disease, deformity, you fill in the blank. I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is coming and going to be revealed to us in the future. Friends, here's what God's word says. If you're hanging on, here's what God's word. If you're ready to throw in the towel, here's what God's word said to you, would say to you that today. As much as you want to escape and eliminate the pain you're suffering when it pertains to sexual identity or same-sex attraction or the overwhelming suicidal thoughts that you have or the anxiety or depression, Jesus would say, hang in there. Don't give up because I have something for you that when I return is gonna overshadow all the pain and all the shame and all the guilt of the past. Here's what the Lord showed me this week. The pain we presently endure today should be a reminder of the promise that Christians will realize in the future. Every time you feel pain, it's a reminder that one day God is gonna make it right. God is gonna come back and restore all things. Now here's what the enemy wants you to believe. The enemy wants you to believe that the present time is all there is. The enemy wants you to believe that this world is your home. The enemy wants you to believe that you are all alone. The enemy wants you to believe that no one understands, nobody possibly could understand me. And I'm here to remind you today, Long Hollow, there is one who does understand you. And his name is Jesus. And the Bible said that when Jesus came to earth, he entered the present struggle of today.
here on this topic. Listen to me. Discipleship in the home is essential, not optional. Discipleship in the home is essential, not optional. The world today is indoctrinating our children and our grandchildren in an anti-biblical, anti-Christ worldview. And I'll prove to you what kind of censorship is happening today. Two weeks ago, uh, or, or I preached two weeks ago on God's covenant for marriage being one man, one woman, one flesh, one lifetime. Our social media department put that on TikTok. TikTok took it down and said, this is hate speech. This is vulgar and discriminatory. They took it down. No longer can you post stuff like this. That's the world we live in. Where our young people are being censored by, by people to hear what they want them to hear. If you don't tell them in the home and disciple them in the home, they're being discipled somewhere else. Dads, look at me for a moment. Moms, look at me. It's more than just dropping your child off to Wednesday night. We love the fact that you do that, but it's more than that. It's more than just sitting next to you on a Sunday listening to a sermon. Dad, you are the chief disciple maker in your home and it's time for you to step up and lead. Your wife, I promise, wants you to do that. Your kids need you to do that. And if dad's not in the home or he's there, but he's not present, then mom, you lead for the glory of God. Here's the final one. Let us be a people who extend grace instead of hate. Let us extend grace instead of hate. The world is so used to seeing us for what we're against as Christians and not what we're for. You know, it's so overwhelming to me to think about the struggles of our children. Listen, Long Hollow is not a perfect church, okay? I don't, I don't want you to think we are. In fact, the moment you call me as your pastor, you, you realize that. <laughs> In fact, someone told me one time, if you're looking for a perfect church, don't join ours because you're going to ruin it. So... Um, we're, listen, we're not a perfect church. We're a church of imperfect people who are broken and desperately in need of a savior. Listen, we're all clinging to Jesus daily. We're dying to self and we're eagerly awaiting the day when Christ himself will return and make all wrongs right. He's gonna restore all brokenness and he's gonna make us whole. But until that day, listen to me. I wanna challenge you to do two things. Number one, love yourself as God's creation and masterpiece. God didn't make a mistake when he made you. And when you love yourself as God loves you, then it's very easy to love your neighbor as yourself. And so here's what I wanna do as we close the series. I'm gonna invite you just to join me and pray the more I've studied about sexual brokenness and just brokenness in general, I realize how broken I am and desperately need Christ's grace in my own life. And so I, I wanna invite you this morning as, as we pray, I'm just gonna ask you to bring your pain and brokenness to the Lord today. 
And I don't know if it's same-sex attraction. I don't know if it's gender confusion. I don't know if it's a porn addiction. I don't know if it's sex before marriage or in a dating relation. I don't know what the sexual or the brokenness is, but I'm gonna invite you right now. We're just gonna pray. I'm gonna pray over you in a moment. You don't have to tell me what it is. You don't need to. God already knows. And I also want to invite you to come as well in just a moment. If you have someone, like when I started speaking, like this name came to mind or the person or the face came to mind. It may be the whole series. Maybe you have a son or a daughter who has same-sex attraction or confused about their identity, about their gender. Maybe you have a brother or a sister or a mom or a dad or a friend at the office that just came to mind. I'm going to ask you in just a moment to come and we're going to lift those up to the Lord. Just, just hold them before the Lord. Say, God, I don't know what to do, but I'm, I'm lifting them up to you. And so let's pray. Just join me for a moment. We're gonna pray to the Lord and just adopt a posture of humility. If that's you, would you, would you just come? If, if the name of a person comes to mind right now or family member, you come. Don't, if it's a schoolmate or a classmate, Students, if you have friends who are confused and just don't know better, I'm asking you to come and just pray on their behalf. Would you stand in the gap for them? If you're a mom, would you come pray for your daughter? If you're a dad, would you come pray for your family? If you, if you have a coworker or a friend or a cousin or, or an aunt or an uncle, you're just gonna pray. Maybe it's you. You're the one who needs prayer. Would you just come? You're just gonna pray. Don't miss this time. I'm telling you, if, if God brings someone to mind, you come. Others have already come, so you just come. Just get out of your seat and come. Grab the hand of your spouse and come. Just come. If you're in this issue right now and you're dealing with this, it's pertinent, it's personal, you come. If you've hidden it for years and you didn't want to tell anybody, you're ashamed, you come. Just say, God, I'm confessing this. You can't control your desire, but you can confess it. Huh. You can confess it. It's not your fault how you're tempted. It's how you respond when you are. So if you need to come, you come. Others are still coming, praise God. You come. Don't miss this. God, put someone in your heart. You just come right now. And I'm going to pray over you specifically. There's something about publicly responding when God moves in your heart. You come. Thank you, sister. Anyone else? Just a moment longer. Thank you, brother. Anyone else? Just a moment longer. We're just going to pray and offer ourselves, offer these men and women up to God. And so I'm going to ask you now, if you're here at the front and um, you're praying on behalf of someone, would you, just, would you just speak their name to the Lord? Would you just say that? And maybe in the quietness of your own heart, just lift that up, to, lift them up to God and just say, God, I'm, I'm holding this person before you. Would you just pray on their behalf? Maybe that person is you and you're saying, hey, I'm struggling with this. I have a, I 
of a sexual brokenness issue in my life that I'm confessing now, would you just confess that to the Lord? God, we're not talking about ideas or hypotheticals. We're talking about real people here. We're talking about souls that potentially could spend eternity separated from you, God. And so we pray on their behalf. We cry out to you. We're burdened, God, for these men and women who have been confused by the enemy, God, who, who takes what Jesus said, it is written, and causes them to say, is it really written? Is it really that way? God, I'm praying for the moms and dads who have been burdened for years or months with this. Praying for the friends and students and classmates who, whose heart breaks for these men and women. God, don't give us a heart of anger. Give us a heart of compassion. Soften our hearts to be like you. Jesus, let us see the crowds like you did with mercy and tenderness. And God, when we're quick to pick up a megaphone and criticize, let us pick up a mirror and confess that we sin too and we are broken too and we fall too. And so God, I'm praying right now that the weight and shame and guilt that's on the shoulders of these men and women would be lifted. God, for the mom and dad in here who think, where did we go wrong? Why, why did this happen? Could we have done something different? God, let me remind him there are no perfect parents. There are no perfect children. Adam and Eve had a perfect father and they still messed up. And they had kids who were sinners. And so God, I pray that you would restore and redeem and make right. But until that day, God, would you sustain us by your grace? We ask it in the only name we know how. And that's the strong and powerful name of Jesus Christ.